Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. And joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is our reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. And this week's guest, Dentsu Aegis Network's CEO, Henry Tager. Hi, Tim. Later, we'll be talking about the week's topics. Calling bullshit on the pitch process. Seven buys prime. Seven sells Pacific. And what we learned at the seven upfronts. So it's all quite seven heavy this week. So let's uh, let's start by uh, introducing our guest, Henry Tager. Um, a, a long time of this parish, Henry. I think for a w- little while we thought that uh, that we'd said goodbye to you when you went off to the US, and we thought that might be it for your 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 adventures in the Australian media. But then you uh, then you came back to us in uh, in what always seemed like a challenging job. So I I remember a, f- a, f- a few weeks or maybe even a couple of months back, I was writing a piece about people in what I was characterising as impossible jobs and I was trying to decide whether to characterize you as one of those impossible jobs and we chatted and you persuaded me that no it was not an impossible job and I didn't include you in that list now um why what 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 was your argument why are you not in an impossible job well uh, first and foremost I think the 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 role I'm in is is uh, 100% possibilities as opposed to um an impossible task uh, and largely because of the the people that I've uh, uh, been able to connect with in in the Dentsu family, uh, what those people represent in capabilities, how relevant those capabilities are uh, today, and more importantly, you know, tomorrow and beyond for our clients. So, um, it, the the role is, you know, f- far from impossible in in my view. And and in in the short period of time I've been there, um, I'm convinced every day that uh, the you know the the possibilities that you know are in front of us are are starting to become real and 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 so uh, it's uh, by far uh, impossible. So why why do you think the industry perception was that you were coming into such a difficult transition? Well, I, I can't speak on behalf of the entire industry and um, a, anyone who tries to uh, hears about it pretty quickly. But um, I, you know, I think uh, a, a lot of the perception. Uh, of the group relates to uh, client wins, client losses. Uh, in our case, there's been you know more losses in in, in the past uh, couple of years, and and that's you know received a lot of attention. I think people think that uh, if you lose clients, uh, that becomes an impossible situation. But um, what what you learn from uh, from loss is you know far greater than what you learn from 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 wins. That, that's what my history suggests, and and I think the group's definitely showing me and and showing ourselves that that's the case. Um, as for what the 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 market's perception is, I think that's. Uh, something that you know we're mindful of, but that's not what we focus on. We're, we're we're sort of focusing on what we need to do for our clients, what we need to do as a team and to our people, and that's a much more uh, uh, longer term view and a lot more sustainable. And Henry, the other thing that people said was that at some point Dentsu will come back. You know, it is everything cyclical, and there's always a favourite agency to talk about. There's always a perception that one holding group might be in more trouble than the others. So a lot of people have started saying, you know, Henry's going to tear it down, rebuild it, and get it back on top. So, what's your estimation of when Dentsu Aegis Network will be back on top? 
Well, I'm not sure whether top is the intention. Um, we, we, uh, that's, that's definitely not the current thinking. What we're, we're doing at the moment is, uh, focusing on, you know, our existing clients, clients that we see as opportunities and, and that's been really exciting. Um, it's, it's, and it's not, um, just the, you know, Henry's going to do it. I, I, you know, if, if that was the case, I, I wouldn't be doing it. Um, it's it's a real team effort, and uh, that's uh, uh, the reality of our our situation with the, some of the amazing people that have been with the group for for many years. We've you know been lucky enough to to bring some fantastic human beings into the organisation, and in the short period of time, some of these guys have been with us. The impact they're making suggests that any estimation of how how uh, much time it's going to take to get us to where we feel really excited by it's getting shorter and shorter because uh, we're getting we're seeing, I'm seeing collective momentum amongst everyone in the organization from the senior people to the, the the more junior people people in all different parts of the group with different capabilities and what's happening is we're becoming uh, closer and working uh, in a more integrated fashion which is I think anyone who's trying to grow in the future is it's all about coming together, simplifying what we do, uh, demystifying, uh, you know, how and what role we play with our clients, uh, how we engage and, um, uh, create, you know, better outcomes with partners, whether that be, uh, media organizations or, or the, the, the press or, uh, bodies like the MFA or the comps council. Um, all those things are important. Um, and there's many stakeholders in in what we're doing, so um, we're we're ahead of where I thought we'd be. And I, I guess at any given time, you've got different agencies which are travelling at different speeds. That's always the nature of it. Where do you think your key agencies all, all are? Maybe just talk us through sort of a, a few of the key organisations and where each where you see each one in in their journey at the moment. I, I think it, it's probably easier to speak. Uh, to uh, the segments within the group, and I think that's probably uh, one of the, the the biggest secrets of what Dentsu represents in Australia. I think um, historically, and and for for all the right reasons, there's been uh, a view that uh, Dentsu is very much a, a media based business. The, the reality is that forty percent of the group is media. And that's a good point because I guess historically people think of it as the Aegis connection and way back the Mitchells connection. Well, that's right. And, and, and through acquisition, um, the acquisitions have, have created a lot of attention and, and in turn, you know, formed the perception of what the group is. But, um, the, the media and media related businesses are, are the areas that I've been sort of most focused on in the last six months. Uh, I'm really, really, uh, happy and excited about some of the changes we've made there. I can see uh, the the spirit that ha- that has started to create amongst those individual businesses, whether that's within Cara with Sue joining, uh, within Visium with Ash Earnshaw uh, taking on the CEO role, or more recently with Daniel Isaac joining as CEO of, of Dentsuex. There is confidence starting to uh, seep through and back into the business and and that's really exciting, and and that's that's half of it. And what about the creative side? Uh, the creative side, uh, BWM and with Collective are um, uh, the two sort of creative businesses. Uh, BW, but both really exciting businesses. Um, uh, both have huge opportunities uh, to uh, 
grow or evolve in the next uh, sort of six to 12 months. Um, I've spent a lot of time with um, Paul, Jamie and uh, Rob at BWM and their respective teams. Paul Williams, Paul Williams Jamie, McKay, Jamie McKay, Rob Belgiovanni. Rob Belgio. And, um, you know, they are uh, – they're – they're the Rolling Stones of the industry. Um, they keep reminding me of that, as opposed to the Beatles. Yeah, they're probably a bit older, though, aren't they? No, they just to defend, you know, their age. They're, they're a little bit younger than the Rolling Stones, but they're, they're an amazing group. They they um, produce some amazing work for some of Australia's largest brands and continue to do so. Having having their capabilities in the group and connecting those capabilities to other parts, we're seeing some really interesting sort of chemistry and, and output as a result of that. With Collective um, is uh, the a more recent acquisition. We see a lot of opportunity with how With Collective is operating and part of the ISOBAR ecosystem, and uh, we've seen some really good synergy in that space. And with the With Collective, obviously it sort of started life as BWM did, back in the day as independent agencies that, that were acquired. Um, again, there's an industry perception that one of the things you inherited was a sort of situation where a number of acquisitions have been made. Uh, founders were getting towards the end of earnout. That there, there was a real risk of a lot of people moving on and, a, and some, some big final earnout bills as well. Was there something to untangle there when you got there? Well, um, there's there's always untangling, not just uh, in uh, you know one part of the business. It's the the whole business is an untangle with a de- with a desire to retangle in a different way. Um, you know, I, I, my view on uh, you know big checks at the end of earnout is always a good sign. If 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 you're in a position where uh, you're having to cut a check at the end of an earnout that is bigger than you expected, that's usually good news. Um, if if you've managed uh, succession and and talent management through the process and you've got good engagement with the founders through that process, um, it makes it easier to transition from uh, in earnout to post earnout. Um, you know, good signs of that are when founders stay on in the business. And I think in many of the acquisitions that the group has made in in the last decade, there's been a number of founders who are still part of the organisation, which sort of highlights sort of cultural fit and uh, and appropriateness for, you know, their roles moving forward. I, I think we'll see the same with the, the acquisitions that are still going through that earnout period, and, and there are a number of those. And more recently, a number of uh, new acquisitions that we've brought in that are at the beginning of their, their earnout period, which, which is a nice balance. But um, I, I wouldn't call it a, a, a tangle. I think it's... Um, our industry is, is is all about the, the various puzzles that within that live within uh, the various holding groups or, or you know now some of the the consulting firms. It's it's a puzzle. So if that wasn't a big tangle when you got the job and you sat down and you started, what was the biggest problem you think you faced? You know, you're looking at the network, you're looking at the structure, you're looking at the people that you've got. What was the thing that you felt like you had to fix first? Well. The, the the most obvious opportunity, it, it, as opposed to a fix, is um, bringing the group together. And if and I say that because uh, you know we, we talked about this last week at the MFAX, um, just the whole notion of uh, simplicity and uh, simplification and uh, doing that with the backdrop of such complexity in the marketplace. Um, 
you know, the recipe to simplicity is bringing people together so that we can understand, you know, what, what are we doing two times? How can we do it once? Where are we bringing two brands to the table that is making it hard to, to follow what we're trying to say? And that, that has already started. So I, I see that as the, the, the ongoing opportunity and that we're doing a lot of work to remind people that uh, logos aren't really what's critical here. It's more capability and how we bring those capabilities together to help our clients achieve what they need to achieve in their business. And, you know, we, we've talked about uh, this internally at length. The only logos that really matter are the logos of our clients' brands. Our, our, our logos really need to take a, a, a back seat and that's as much a cultural change for the organisation and I would put anyone in this sector as it is uh, an operational and sort of growth-based objective. And I find myself looking back to your your, your, your time at uh, IPG Media Brands here in Australia and you 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 came up, you, 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 you know, initially you were running an agency and then yep. you became the, 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 the executive chairman of the group and it felt like your philosophy at the time was about creating a far bigger sort of field of services that that could be uh, offered to clients that went beyond sort of traditional media and suddenly it became a bigger group, more revenue streams. Um, and it was a really interesting model. Um, it, it, it feels like you're thinking about a different model this time around, though, for, for, for Denso. Is, is, is that a fair observation? And if so, what are the differences in how you're thinking about life now? Well, what uh, we were able to achieve at, at Media Brands was at a moment in time where um, new capabilities and new services were required to deal with these new forces in the marketplace. And when you and, came to it, that was really initiative and UM, was the... That's right. It was... It was and... and you know, the, the first of those new services was search, you know, SEM back in, in, in those days. And, and slowly but surely. So you launched Ensemble? Was that the search uh, offering? No, uh, the search offering was Reprise. Um, but that we, we, we launched a brand to cover that service many years after we had built out the capability. So we, we you know, at the time, um, because the marketplace still sort of needed comfort around, uh, are you a specialist search firm? We needed to put a wrapper around it, and Reprise was the wrapper. And that was also an extension of uh, a search organisation that our US uh, entity acquired, so we, we rolled that brand out. And we're seeing that in the market. Today, a lot of that uh, diversification and expansion of services has already happened across most of the groups and, and even some of the uh, consulting firms. So uh, it's a... The, the proposition now, the opportunity now as it relates to Dentsu is, is really about uh, bringing those together in a seamless, frictionless manner around a client, really surrounding the client and just being sort of uh, holistic to the client's needs. And, and that's a, a small but really important change in orientation. So we alluded there to your role at IPG Media Brands, which was a really big global role. Now, I do note that every time we use a, a negative word such as issue, you then say fix and we say problem and you say opportunity, but I'm going to word the question this way anyway and see what you do with it. You had a huge global role at IPG Media Brands. Why didn't it work out? Well, I, I had a, a you know great two and a half years. Um, it uh, 
for there were a number of reasons why uh, we we came home, and it was uh, uh, partly family based, with our kids being at the point where we wanted them to start and finish high school in in Australia, as opposed to get to a point where, uh, especially our eldest Olivia, uh, was getting to the point where she was in the, the the years in high school where staying in the US would would mean you know, a longer term sort of thought process. Um, the the role I, I went in um, to do in in the US running uh, media brands globally was uh, it was a, a, an amazing role. I, I loved every minute of it, and even when it came to an end, I was really really satisfied and excited by what we had been able to do in terms of pivoting the, the organisation. And I, and I think. Um, the re- the reason why I'm I'm positive about it is I look at what they have been able to achieve since then, and it's it's been really positive. So um, I think it's it's easy and convenient for uh, anonymous others in in the marketplace to um, use change as a negative. Uh, change is a positive, whether that's uh, joining a new role or leaving a new role. Change is a positive, and and that's how I'm hardwired. Um, it did work out. Uh, it it uh, created a huge opportunity for me. It gave me an exposure to uh, what is going on around the world, and and particularly how the U.S. market works, which which is which is the the navigating market for our sector. You know, we shouldn't lose sight of that. But it gave me really good insight into what good looks like, what bad looks like, and that's of huge value to me. And- and what does bad look like? Bad. Uh, what bad looks like is uh, people not working together. No, no, no matter how good uh, an individual is or an individual organisation is, if they can't work harmoniously with others, and there's very few organisations in our industry that have uh, a solo position and there's no one else. So if you can't work well with others and if you can't assimilate to uh, the most important party in that relationship, which is the client's need and and hopes out of their investment, you're gone. I remember interviewing you or, or, or moderating a panel that you were you were you were very kindly one of the speakers on in New York during your time in that role, and uh, uh, we we did a sort of a, a session on, on Australians making it big around the world at, at, at Advertising Week. Um, and I remember one of the things that you talked about then was, and, and uh, these are r- roughly the words because I, I, I can't, can't remember it specifically, but I very much got the impression that one of the kind of cultural differences you'd experienced was the directness of Australians in business versus the way that uh, perhaps, you know, sort of American business culture is. There was, there was a real learning curve for you in, in actually you, you couldn't, you, you, you wouldn't always expect that speaking your mind would uh, uh, have quite the impact that it might have in another market where you were just giving an honest view. Yeah. Well, you know, there are, there are some markets around the world, the, 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 and the US is one of those, where um, the perception you create is almost more important than the reality. And, and um, that applies in some cases. I, I think what that really sort of uh, highlighted to me was having um, uh, grown up in, in, in a market like Australia that is, uh, in my view, one of the leading markets in terms of what we create the output, the thinking, and how progressed we are. But 
challenged by scale, which creates the need for uh, to be resourceful and to be, uh, you know, really sort of entrepreneurial in spirit, sort of, and Australian culture and who we are as as, as people, sort of forces us to get to the point because we don't have time to to meander around and 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 sort of play the perception game because there's just we don't have that luxury. Um, you know that there, there were some situations that um, you know looking back at that I think wow that there were people who must have thought wow this guy's really like out there telling us what he really thinks but in equal measure there were many many times where that resonated and and you know cut through and allowed us to move a lot faster and, and we were able to pivot as an organisation uh, really effectively and I, I'm I'm proud of that. So after you left IPG, you had a couple of years of gardening leave. Yep. What did that period teach you? What did you get up to? How did time away from the industry shape how you think about the industry? Well, well, having a couple of years off, um, I highly recommend that to anyone who who can um, who can do that. I think it's uh, it's good uh, for the soul. And, and it's really important because it, it does provide you some time to work out what the lessons are. Uh, I've always been someone who um, has assessed myself as um, a good. I'm good at managing my time, and 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 I think I, I still am. I think I'm, I'm I'm usually on time and and not late, or try, I try to get as much out of my day. I would say at least four minutes early today. <laughs> I, was, I was I was a little early. Um, having time away. Or time out made me understand and and shed light on something that I had never ever thought about, and that was what is the value of my time. So being being good at managing your time is 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 good. I think it's an important skill set to have in any profession or as a human because it's time is not in our control. But if you if you can you know gauge the value of your time, then it helps determine where you put your time. And and that's probably the most important lesson I've I was able to get out of that time. And and I'm 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 applying that now that I'm working again, not just in a professional sense, but more importantly in a personal sense with my family and and my kids. And and that's really that's the only thing that matters. So um that's 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 the 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 most important lesson. The other lesson is. Whilst you may, you know, people may think that, um, you know, if you've got time out or in the garden, you've got plenty of time, the day goes pretty quick. You know, I was up early, hit the gym, take the kids to school, have some lunch. Before you know it, shit, we've got to go get the kids. And then it's the, the whole evening routine. And by that stage, I was so tired. Um, so I was busy. I got busy. Next, the wash up from the Media Federation Conference. So last week, the Media Federation of Australia held its inaugural MFAX conference. Media agencies closed for the day to let staff attend. Now, one of the sessions at MFAX was a panel called Killer Questions, in which agency bosses answered questions from the audience on topics like pitching, pricing, diversity. Uh, Henry, you were on that panel. Um, now, um, I, I think one of the kind of interesting things was... Uh, all of the all of the panelists came from slightly sort of, I guess, guess different brand positions. Um, one of the oak 
unspoken things on the panel, which actually became spoken. I'm not sure all of the audience heard it until they watched it back on the video was, um, uh, publicists were represented on the panel. They'd recently won Kellogg's, which is a sort of matter of kind of, uh, public discussion in the industry that, that a, a number of different agency groups had, uh, um, declined to pitch on because of the, the, the terms around pricing. Now, um, Toby Barber made the argument that, um, from publicists, he sort of, without referring specific to that client, talked about the sort of the global side of things, the fact that sometimes, um, effectively, hey, you're stuck with agreeing a local price because of what the international deal was. Um, and I think the first word you said in response was bullshit. What, uh, what was the context of that? Well, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, that comment and that panel has uh, received a lot more attention than I thought it would. Um, to be honest, I, I, I was uh, – I, I went to that panel with a view to be completely honest about um, whatever questions um, were were provided because I, I didn't have the questions. The questions were not uh, provided. Uh, when, when we got uh, started on that subject, you know, unfortunately we, we weren't able to finish that conversation. Um, and – you know where where I was heading on 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 that conversation was trying to defend Kellogg's locally because we were involved in that process and and I felt it was a really good process. There, there were there was a lot of um, uh, negative headlines that were uh, sort of directed to to Tamara who, who who I thought was a really you know impressive CMO and she was very collaborative, very inclusive, and what. It highlighted to us the way they managed their process, which was a good process, was to to be open to discussion and open to um, looking at things in different ways to try and help those who who would participate um, be able to participate. And and we ended up uh, uh, deciding to participate because we were able to have an open and, and truthful conversation about some of the challenges that related to that. And I won't get into that. Um, so, you know, the point I made that was, I think, more pertinent was the issue around pitching is not so much what certain agencies or holding groups are prepared to do in terms of um, what they're, pre- they're prepared to price their own services for. That is, uh, that is subject to whatever a CEO or a holding group wants to do, and that's, that's a marketplace. But when, when you start to price someone else's product... And in in the case, as it is in many occasions with with uh, media pitches, you start to price um, uh, another channel, whether it's television, uh, outdoor, uh, digital. Then then you're taking the responsibility of setting a, a, a value on someone else's product, oftentimes without uh, any consideration for that organisation's willingness to accept that. And that was my the the comment around you know. Uh, t- Toby's truthfulness was centred around that, and I think it's it's been it's been sort of twisted to 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 be something else. I, I, you know, for the record, I actually think the Kellogg's guys managed a good pitch, and um, they were open and they were very constructive and 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 open and flexible commercially. I don't think that is what determined the outcome of that process, and and I had the benefit of having. Uh, a, a really positive conversation with Tamara afterwards, and, and that 
that's the truth. I think though IPG and Omnicom both when they found out the the payment terms chose to walk away and I know at one point during that panel you you, you not for this specific reason but you did I- express admiration for Omnicom's journey when it comes to to this sort of conversation what 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 made you point to Omnicom in particular there what what is it you think they've got right uh, my my comment to um towards Omnicom wasn't uh, because I think they are, um, you know, they have a stance on on commercial um, terms. I think every holding company has a portfolio of clients that represent different commercial arrangements and, and they balance out to be whatever the ultimate annual output is. Um, I, I think what, uh, what the guys at Omnicom have done is um, show the marketplace what consistency looks like and it looks good. And and I and you know I I I'm not uh, uh, that insecure to 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 give a competitor some praise. I, you know I think they're they're a great operation. Uh, I want to go up against the guys from Omnicom, and I want to beat those guys when the time is right, for the right opportunity around the right client, and that will give us a good sense of our own benchmarking and our own quality parameters. And and Omnicom aren't the only. I think, you know, IPG is a really good operation. There are some really good parts of the the um, the WPP offering, as is the case with Publicis. So, um, you know, I, I'm not anti-competitors. I, I, I never have been, but I'm a competitor. And to compete, I think you have to respect your, your competition. And, and, and that was really the, the call-out. It wasn't... Um, it wasn't centred around whether they're better at saying no to clients on commercial terms because I'm sure they've got some curly ones in, in their portfolio. Everyone does. Brittany, back in June on stage at Umbrella 360, Matt Baxter, who's the global CEO of Initiative, somewhat called for a bit of a ditch the pitch. For everyone listening, can you remind them what his stance on that was? Uh, June seems like forever ago. <laughs> so Matt's... A presentation basically hinged around a bunch of research that his team had done with initiative data and recommend data that said, this is why pitching's gotten worse. This is why pitching's gotten more expensive. This is why the scope of it's blown out. We need to say no. Essentially, he made a parallel between how agencies pitch and the process for choosing an agency versus the process for appointing a law firm or an architecture firm and said that it's more and more unfair for agencies and clients kind of need to step up and and make the playing field fairer, which did include sort of this ultimate, should we ditch the pitch? Should we have this kind of glass door for pitches almost that he did say that he would set up if IPG allowed him to? We haven't heard anything further about that for a while. Um, but yeah, that, that was Matt's position. So Henry, do you agree with Matt's position there? No, I, I don't actually, because um, I think, uh, I, and I and I've always felt this way. I actually think the pitch represents the equivalent to the opening night on Broadway for uh, the theatre industry. Uh, a pitch is really important culturally for agencies because it it's a it's a congregation point and it brings all different parts of the the, the business together under what is in many cases. A really pressure cooker situation, and in most cases, it brings the best out of uh, agencies, at least great agencies. There is there is some magic that happens through a pitch. I, like I'm I'm uh, pitches are not 
my strength in terms of what I the role I play within an organisation. But you know, I'm, I'm often um, amazed at how uh, you know at the beginning of the process, you know, there's a, a pitch in place, there's a brief, and and there's there isn't an answer. And through that process, whether it's a difficult one or or a, an easy and smooth one, on game day, there is this buzz and there is excitement, and everyone is up. And in many cases, the agency agencies uh, turn up and show their best. What what I think is more important than ditching the pitch, which you know, I, I've known Matt for a long time. I love Matt. He's a he's a he's an amazing human being. You brought him with you to New York, for instance. He 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 was he was in one of my bags in 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 New York. He was in uh, he was excess baggage. I'm just kidding. He, he, he's a good guy. He, he's a he's a brilliant mind, and I think he he's someone that Australia should be extremely proud of in terms of what he is achieving and what he has achieved. So, first and foremost, I think. That's important to, to point out. What's more important, and I learnt this from Matt, is what you do in a pitch should be what you do every day, not um, Sunday best. And I, and I think that is um, a more important insight that I think the marketplace needs to really be looking for through the process of a pitch as opposed to uh, look, at my, look at what we can do and look at how cheap it's going to be because that's not the reality once a decision is made and in some cases the process um that you know agencies have, uh, are put through doesn't result that way but there are a number of companies and pitch consulting uh, firms that do focus on that and those the, the clients that go that way end up with the right agency does the industry have the resources to be pitch level energy every day though yes uh, if you think about, you know, a pitch is a is a is a production, but what we um, as an industry create, produce, and output on a daily, hourly basis is much greater than what happens at, at a pitch level, and and I think that's oftentimes lost on the market because no one talks about, um, hey, at Cleminger today, uh, sixteen TVCs were cut. Uh, four radio ads were written, uh, four, you know, 16 out. That, that doesn't happen. That's, that's not regarded as interesting enough. But that's, that's the bulk and the grunt in the industry. Um, well, just before we get off the topic of uh, MFAX, um, what else did you get out of the day? What other discussions particularly caught your attention or, or made you think about afterwards maybe in a different way? Listen, I, I thought um, James Warburton's... Um, uh, points of views on the marketplace, um, you know, th- their role in the market, uh, how agencies position, them, position them themselves was... James Wharton, CEO of Seven West Media. That's right. Um, I thought that was sort of really pointed, uh, really fair and uh, a call-out. Um, I, I was uh, really impressed with uh, some of the younger uh, people in the industry um, Getting up in front of you know fifteen hundred people and and you know expressing either their views or their experiences that um, I know when when I was at that point in my in my career you know that I probably wouldn't have done that I, I wouldn't have had um, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do that and and I, I'm really encouraged by um, just the the caliber of the next generation the next generation's caliber is of great great excitement to me and they're they're far they're far more superior to 
my generation of uh, executives in the marketplace. Um, and so the, the, that, that was some call-outs. Just um, seeing how many people were there for the whole day said to me, um, we've got a, a, an industry of believers, but what's the faith? And, 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 you know, I tried to make, maybe it was a bit too late in the piece. I think the, the, the bullshit comment may have stolen the, the limelight. But the, the real point that I, the, re, the reason why I really went to the panel was because I actually wanted to say, who's reminding our clients and ourselves that marketing grows business? So talking the, the marketing sector up, being positive about that is something that since I've been back at Vensu, all I'm hearing is um, what's declined, uh, who's in trouble, uh, who's losing. Uh, what we're not hearing is the success, the success stories, which there are far more than 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 failures. And and I think we, as an industry, including Mumbrella and and the other uh, uh, trade uh, publications and platforms, I think we we have a responsibility to uh, make time and create content that represents and highlights the importance of our industry. Otherwise, we've got bigger issues. And I, and I, I don't think we're talking enough about that. Next, let's talk about seven. Seven held its Upfronts event this week to reveal what 2020 at the network will look like. The theme was one place to show media buyers that they can reach 90% of Australians through one network. But the one place we really heard about was Tokyo. We did have a bet amongst the team about how many times the word Olympics would be used. Now, Tim, I think you bet 24 and I, I tallied 24. And yes. I tallied 25, but I think I did tune out a, a couple of times so that my tally might not be a hundred percent. What correct. was your, what was your bet? Oh, I didn't guess. I was the bookmaker. I was just, ah, <laughs> I seem to remember Hannah guessed 48. Didn't yes. She? Well, look, we, I actually thought they'd say content led growth more than they did. They did mention that a couple of times though. Um, throughout the evening, we heard that much of the speculation we'd already uh, been given was true. Big Brother's coming back. Farmer Wants a Wife is coming back. Former MasterChef judges Gary Megan and Matt Preston will be joining the network once they're off gardening leave. And we're also going to have a mini golf competition that sort of looks like Wipeout meets Australian Ninja Warrior meets Putt Putt Golf in Mega Mini Golf. But didn't it look good? Do you know what? I said to James Warburton afterwards, like when I first read that in a press release, it's hard to get a sense of a program from a press release. I looked at it and I was like, are you kidding? This is going to be terrible. I said to James, I was so wrong. It looked so good. And I reckon I'm going to watch it, which is a bit sad. Do you reckon you'll watch Mega Mini Golf, Henry? I I, I think uh, there were two standouts for men and Mini Golf was one of those. It's... um, I would describe that as uh, it's a, a part Ninja Warrior, part Love Island, part Bachelorette, <laughs> um, all set on the scene of a, a, of, a of a sort of uh, Alice in Wonderland golf course <laughs> with a uh, hint mini of golf I- and a, with a hint of kind of tongue in cheek irony as yeah, well. I think, yeah. and, if and, they get the right commentary team, and and and, and I'm, I'm sure they will. Um, so you know, I, I, I think I will watch it. I'll, I'll trial it. And what Definitely. was the other highlight for you? I, I think uh, the sleeper 
in terms of the new shows was uh, Pooch Perfect. Um, you know, what, what I think uh, Seven have, have done, and, and I think um, that they could attest to this uh, more, but, you know, I know that they, uh, they've put that in uh, at the, the format sales at MIPCOM and, and have had great success with, with that format internationally prior to it. It's not even been um, shot yet and, and, and gone to air. So, and this local version is Rebel Wilson. And, and, you know, with Rebel Wilson, who is a, you know, great talent, you know, a great, uh, you know, front for the show. What it really t- talks to is, you know, a cultural blind spot that um, television has sort of forgotten about, and that is pets and the relationship with the furry member of the family. And I think proof to what I think will be a success is all the other family-related or family relationship top shows, Married, uh, Married at First Sight, Love Island, Bachelorette, have been sort of standouts. They've really popped. Pets are, I think, going to be as prolific, and I think we're going to see some great success there. And, Brittany, did you notice that before we threw to Rebel Wilson on a video, Samantha Armitage, the Sunrise host, <laughs> came out on stage with some real-life dogs, and my goodness, they seemed to have trouble standing up on that slippery stage almost. I think that was one of my favourite moments of the whole (laughs) thing, though. It was great. Love a dog. Love two dogs. Love Samantha Armitage. Trying to keep two dogs under control. One of them was, like, jumping up on her very expensive and nice-looking skirt. So, yeah, I loved it. It was a nice skirt, wasn't it? It was. It was quite unique. It was. Uh, I, I was sort of quietly... Uh, hoping that one of the dogs would take a take a sort of bathroom moment, and I know? thought that would have that would have been the highlight of the night uh, for all the right reasons. Well, the um, weird thing is, uh, this is quite weird. I was having exactly the same thoughts. It did. I think everybody some, was. Seemed like maximum comedy, didn't it? Yeah. I think that what Seven did really well was tell a good story from the opening where they had the old footage play and sort of some actors dressed like they were from, you know, years gone by looking up at the screen and sort of re-evoking what Olympics magic is and what it was to Kerry Stokes through to, you know, using their talent really cleverly, I think, to link to the shows. I thought that it was, yeah, a really good decision by them and and it didn't feel overdone or overcooked. I did say to James Warburton, the CEO of Seven Afterwards, that they're in quite a good position to be doing upfronts at the moment because the narrative around Seven has been about struggle, has been about failed programming launches. So it was good to see what has been Australia's number one network for so long actually be forced into having a bit of humility, which gave them such an opportunity to talk about how they could turn things around and, and make it better. You know, it wasn't just them beating their chests and saying we're number one. It was quite like, okay, well, here's where we failed. And I thought that was a really honest uh, opening from James Warburton. He was really quite scathing of the network's performance, but in an optimistic way, like here's where we've let you down, but come with us on that journey how did you feel about James's opening, Henry? Listen, I think James uh, did a great job. Uh, you know, I've uh, I, I spoke to James and to Kurt this morning and, and congratulated both of them on um, you know really sort of turning up uh, yesterday evening. Um, there's you know to your point around uh, you know a little bit of uh, humility and and you know that really resonated and engaged with with the audience. Well, let me read out the the, the quote: weak 
inward focused, tired and stagnant with a string of poor programs and failures. Those were his own words. Well, they're, they're in, in James's view, uh, facts of the past. But I think the way, the tone and, and the way that he um, addressed those was in a humble, uh, in a humble way. And I think uh, humble is actually pretty engaging as a, as a, as a method. And, and I, the media industry has not been humble historically. But I think has, that's why it was so different to see somebody well, at such a sort of chest-beating event to actually be quite quite humble like that. Well, I, I would put to you that when you are humbled as an organisation, <laughs> you learn humble. And I think that's important. What we saw from Seven last night is that they have learnt some lessons from some of these um, programs that may have not have uh, achieved what they want, um, the way in which they've positioned themselves. So I, I, I give those guys credit. And what do you think, though? Because clearly what, what he had to do by doing that was there was an implicit criticism of his predecessor, Tim Warner, you know, because obviously everyone in the room knew that happened on Tim Warner's watch. Um, if I were to advise you to critique Simon Ryan, your predecessor at Dentsu, what, what would your reply be? Well, listen, I, I've known Simon for, uh, for a long time. You know, we worked together uh, over 20 years ago. Um, to be honest, I, I, I'm not. I don't think I've uh, earned the right to criticise Simon just yet. You know, I'm still new in the organisation. You know, there are a lot of things that Simon James uh, has only been there a month. Yeah, but everyone's different. Um, you know, while Simon was at um, at Dentsu in, in his various roles, I think there's a, a number of things that he did that were really good, and, and I've inherited some of those. There are some things that um, uh, you know. Maybe unfairly, Simon may be uh, uh, being perceived as the author of or the the creator of, and and that that will always come when there's a change of uh, of guard or what have you. But um, you know, it, it's it's not my place, and it's not my style to. Um, I don't really talk about the past. You know, the the only thing that matters to me is the future and what we're doing today. Um, yeah, so. So speaking, speaking of the future, one of the things I did say in, in reading through these programming announcements was we're heading into 2020. Reading the programming announcements on paper, it did feel a little bit like going back to 2002 in that it's Big Brother, it's Farmer Wants a Wife. You know, apparently Big Brother's already had more than 30,000 applications, which is is huge, but do you think that we're sort of relying on nostalgic programming rather than innov- innovative programming? Because it did feel like a lot of the formats they're bringing back we have done before when I was at high school. I, I, that's one way to look at it. I, I'm forever the optimist or maybe I'm the contrarian, I don't know. But um, some of those programs that you, you reference were programs that were um, hugely um, innovative, but, you know, big, I remember when, when Network 10 bought, bought Big Brother out, it was at the, up at the Gold Coast. No one had any, had seen anything like it. Uh, what it meant in terms of television experience and, and voyeurism was like off the Richter scale. Um, bringing those, some of those formats back, um, it's, it's easy to say same format, different time, but, the, the, the most fundamentally changed part of that combination is not the actual format, but it's the broadcast platform that they're going on. So when Big Brother was first uh, launched, it was on a linear platform. It was a, it was a one channel, one, one channel, one channel. Uh, 10 was only 10. 
Big Brother on 7 will be uh, potentially on 7 or one of their channels, plus BVOD, every screen uh, available, social, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many more dimensions that we've not seen yet that could actually be the leading dimensions. Linear may not, and I would expect, Linear will not be the leading driver of Big Brother audience. And and that's, I think, the, 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 the insight here is, let's forget about this as TV. What does this represent or create as an audience opportunity? And how do brands manoeuvre or navigate around audience opportunities for their brands and how they engage with us, whether that be through social only or holistically or through linear or any part of that? Well, Britt, um, uh, while we're still talking about sort of the content side of things, I was sitting next to you and then I think it was uh, Vivian and Hannah, so you could see them more closely than me. When we when we got on to Farmer's want, Farmer Wants a Wife, I thought, because it was a very well-cut trailer, I thought they were actually getting a bit tearful. Now, it Vivian was not getting tearful. It could tearful. have been that Vivian was just upset because she'd left her phone in the office and she was finding <laughs> that stressful, but particularly Hannah. Um, your take? Was I, was I reading This is that so right? unfair to Hannah, who's not in the room. Poor Hannah out at her <laughs> desk, having no idea what I'm about to say. And also, what did um, you think of Farmer Wants a Wife? Well, I think well? Hannah is a huge fan. I think she wouldn't mind me admitting that she's probably Farmer Wants a Wife's number one fan. Uh, we were worried, and the reason why the three of us were chatting is because when it came up on screen, the various Facebook comments, we were like, wow, what if Hannah's comments are among those? Because... <laughs> She Hannah, tagged us all on Facebook. Hannah had tagged us on Facebook, I think, saying that she was about to break up with her boyfriend because applications were open. So that's what we were laughing at. Um, but she did, I, she did get teary when one of the farmers sort of said that he was struggling and really just needed some help. There were definite almost yeah, tears. Yeah, look, I never watched Farmer Wants a Wife. I was never hugely into it. I'll be interested to see how... I guess the more wholesome proposition uh, competes against, you know, maths next year, which has sort of been promoted as being more controversial perhaps even than this season was. So I think there's something to say about nice love stories and farmers and they, they hinged it on kind of the drought and it's more important than ever to have uh, – sort of stories coming out of regional, you know, Australia. So, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. And I think it also connects with what you were saying, Henry, about Big Brother, which is, again, I never watched it. I think I was too young in Big Brother's heyday. That makes me feel quite old. (laughs) (laughs) But I think uh, it's not like the new reality formats where they're having to build it from scratch and show people that it's worth it. They said a few times that it's, you know, the biggest reality format in the world, which it'll be interesting to see if that's still the case, say, this time next year. But there's already a huge audience there who will be super interested in what they do with it, who will tune in just to see if they feel the same way about it as they did 10 years ago. So I think it will – the audience numbers for both of those shows, I think, will be interesting just because – They've got the fan base already there. Well, Henry, um, just while we're, we, we, we were talking about the trailers, one of the things that I guess one of the elements of all of the upfronts is they're this mixture of sizzle and substance. You know, it's, it's not just telling people about next year, it's how you present it as well. It really struck me that Seven did such a good job just with how the trailers were cut. Do you... It's a bit unfair to ask you to pick a favourite of the three, but I'm going to. Who do you think just did the sizzle best this year out of 10, 9 and 7? 
That that's uh that's a multi-million dollar question, um, especially at this time of the year. Um, I, I think um, the seven and nine presentations were of a different type, um, and because they they have uh, you know a slate that are uh, probably more similar, uh, largely because they've got you know platform sport built into that. I thought I thought, um, uh, thought nine's uh, up front last week. To be honest, I, I was really impressed with nine. I thought um, the the way in which they presented their their content and and the strength behind that really resonated with me. Interestingly, some of the comments I heard back from nine was um, not a lot of new stuff, and I took that as a sign of strength. If you're not putting a lot of new programs on and uh, relying on you know still viable formats, which I think nine is very much in that place, that's 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 a strong point um and nine didn't have uh, an olympic sort of jewel to 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 shine i thought seven seven uh what we got yesterday was a humble version of what seven used to do when when you know back in the lecky days and and uh, you know you know every brick in the wall you know it was a little bit more chest beating but it was solid and it was like holy shit you know this is this is this is about as close to um uh, an upfront show that I that I've seen in Australia that resembles what I, I got to experience uh, in the US. Uh, ten, to be honest, um, ten maybe didn't have as much of the sizzle, but I found ten quite authentic, and and I think that's important as well. And it, it I think to ten's credit to Paul and and the team there, um, you know, they, 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 they've had uh, other challenges at a corporate level with ownership and 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 with uh, sports rights lapsing. So. The, the networks are in a different position, but you know, it's hard to go past. It's hard to go past networks that have got cultural sporting platforms in seven and 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 nine, which they do with in the cricket and the tennis, cricket, tennis, AFL, NRL. Very hard to go past. I think that's a market view. Um, the Olympics is a power play. Having the Olympics exclusively on every screen format is. You know, double down on power. You know, I've been saying this to a few people. Um, next year is not only an Olympic year; it's, it's a leap year. And you know, what, what what am I telling people to do in a leap year? Take the leap and 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 leap into the year. You know, you know, back back the television as uh, as a as a platform as opposed to a channel. And and I think great things will will be returned as part of that. So, Vivian, we're already running a bit long. Um, lots else going on with Seven uh, this week as well. Yes. So, Seven has sold its Pacific Magazine's arm to its rival, Bauer Media, for $40 million, uh, with the Pacific team set to move in to Bauer's Park Street offices. And uh, the CEO, Brendan Hill, has said there are no plans to cut any magazine titles. Now, I wonder, do you think that's likely? I do, I do remember reading an article on news.com.au quoting a certain media pundit who seemed to be predicting mergers aplenty. Uh, yes, I did give an interview to Shannon Malloy at news.com.au. Calling out the journalist. Uh, how, how did you feel you were reported? It's always interesting to be on the other side uh, and, and to, ha- to be asked 
questions and to see how other people would conduct interviews. Uh, I think that the gist of what I said came across, perhaps not exactly what I said. So I do have some sympathy for people who find themselves in the press because I read it and I was like, oh, you got the gist of what I said. And you included my joke about Jennifer Aniston, which perhaps wasn't the most highbrow thing that I said. I would have included the Jennifer Aniston gag as well, so that's fine. But I don't know that I was quoted 100% correctly. Remind us of the Jennifer Aniston gag. Well, this all comes back to whether or not Brendan Hill, the CEO of Bauer Media, will cut magazines. My point to Shannon at news.com.au was that there's a lot of overlap between these rivals. They're fierce competitors. So, of course, when you bring them together, there's a lot of properties that traditionally have been fighting for consumer eyeballs. You're going to have a lot of celebrity titles in the form of NW, New Idea, OK, Who, and all of those. To me, when they're competing for advertising dollars, for consumer eyeballs, for that picking it up at the Woolies checkout when you're waiting for the self-serve to actually work – you don't want to be splitting that pie too much. There's only so many ways you can say Jennifer Aniston is pregnant. That was the basis of the joke. We probably need a few less Jennifer Aniston is pregnant stories. And I believe that they will have to consolidate some of those titles. I don't think that's a bad business decision. You don't bring businesses together to keep things the same uh, at a time when the magazine market is changing so much. I think they can find synergies and efficiencies and probably consolidate the best of the titles that they have. I, I can't – I'm not calling Brendan Hill a liar by any means. I'm sure he wants to get the lay of the land and doesn't have immediate plans to cut everything, but I can't see all of those titles existing forever. Henry, what, what do you think the advertisers want? I think the advertising um, industry wants a, a healthy magazine industry and, and – the the Pacific sale to Bauer, I think, promotes a healthier future. Uh, less is more, whether that's less publishers or less magazines. I think it applies to both. So um, whilst uh, selling uh, Pacific out of the Seven West stable helps James and uh, the team there um, bring down debt and, and, you know, commit to that 30% additional in, in investment in tentpole uh, content, um, is, I think that's a good thing. Having uh, Pacific and Bauer come together is a good thing for magazines. It will make it easier for the market to engage. It, it may result in, in less magazines, but I think the, we, we should sort of give credit to the Bauer guys. They, they, they know how to operate magazine uh, businesses, um, and I think we'll see a stronger and more vibrant magazine sector as a result of that. Um, so... I think it makes sense. I think the market will will uh, engage. Um, it, it'll it'll be easier for for Bauer to start promoting magazines without having to worry about competitive tension. It's it's I think it's it's healthier. And also this week, Tim, just before we wrap up, uh, Seven has announced its plans to purchase regional broadcaster Prime. It's a merger. Merger. It's not, it's not a, purchase. A, a, a bit like Nine merged it's with different. Fairfax. Yeah. It was a merger. Yeah, but what, it's a merger technically. Technically, yeah. So we do have this debate quite often in the newsroom where sometimes we'll say merger and then sometimes we'll say acquisition, and it can be a funny dynamic, particularly with something like Prime and Seven, where uh, the so way that share. they're doing the yeah. deal is is yeah. So so you say you say merger. Well, it's a merger of unequals, but it's a merger. <laughs> Uh, 
That, and, that, and that's what's been proposed to shareholders. And so, Tim, what what do you think this this means for Seven on stage at the Seven Upfronts? Uh, James Warburton was very much spruiking it as uh, halving media buyers' workloads because they can have one conversation with one sales team and reach 90% of Australia. Uh, he said something about how much bigger that makes them than, than nine and, and 10 in terms of reach and was really saying that, you know, despite the nine and Fairfax merger, this makes seven the biggest company and, and able to take on Facebook and YouTube. Yes, there was that sort of talk of 90% population reach and this sort of thing. I... I mean, the, the timing of the announcement obviously was great because it just showed a bit of momentum ahead of the upfronts. You know, the, 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 the pack mags deal gets debt down. This deal doesn't, you know, it arguably helps the company's position on the ASX because, you know, as Henry says, it was a, it was a share based deal. They're not spending money on it. So it, it all sort of shows this momentum. I, I guess maybe it also taps in a little bit to, we've seen a lot going on with the Boomtown initiative. This, 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 this argument that regional audiences are being undervalued and that the, the, I'd love to get your, your perspective on it, Henry, that maybe there's a sort of reassessment of how much should be spent on metro versus regional when, when budgets are being allocated. So it, it feels like, the timing was good for a number of reasons. Oh, I agree. The, the The move is a smart move. It's a logical move. I think um, whilst the upfronts is really about content, Prime is a corporate announcement, and I think it was the right place to announce that. Uh, the The mathematics on on the proposed merger do point to uh, one media organisation being able to provide ninety percent reach. In Australia, so that is true. Um, the, the market will need to sort of um, sort of adjust to that proposition if it's to come to life, because the other two regional and metro pairings are not operating in that merged or centralised manner. So, um, th- theoretically, what Kurt and, ja- and James said about halving your workload could be the case on a third of the market opportunities. So. Um, if the whole market was to do that, then yes, that, that changes the the way you engage. On the on the Boomtown comment, I think that's a really important and valid point. What, what I what I see as a huge opportunity is for the merger to um, drag regional investment back up by having the Metro um, bigger brother uh, insist that little brother gets fed properly as well. So I think. There is definite opportunity there, and the whole regional sector will benefit from that. Um, it may prompt uh, a bit of curiosity from some of the other media groups to look at the remaining regional uh, assets that exist. There has to be a consolidation. I think that's inevitable. Uh, since the government's media reform and, and changes, we, we haven't seen the consolidation that we all expected. You know, what we saw was nine make their play, and... I think it's fair to say that Nine's move uh, was a, a game changer for their business and it, and it put them in the lead position uh, as a media organisation. So seeing Seven follow suit is a good sign for the broader sector. Uh, what this now means for other parts of the organisation, what does news do? Uh, you know, what do... Now, what do you think news will do? Well, n- news is still one of the largest footprints in, in the Australian marketplace. And, you know, they are uh, getting a lot smarter about how they make their footprint, you know, 
really felt in in the marketplace. So, you know, I think in in, in the next twelve months, uh, you know, it's a leap year. We may see some leaps of faith. Uh, we may see more corporate activity. Uh, all of this points to a healthy, a vibrant marketplace, and. You know, I, I, I'm going to try and be a, a broken record for as long as I can. What it really highlights is how much opportunity there is for brands and for marketers to re-engage and re-evaluate how much they're using uh, media, marketing and comms to drive their business. And I think that's, you know, uh, an important sign. Well, on that leap of faith, I think we're out of time. So in a big media week, Henry, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank Brittany, you. thank you. Thanks, Tim. Vivian, thank you. You're welcome. That's all for this week. Toodle pen. Toodle pen.